Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Intercepted. I'm Nausicaa Renner, Deputy Editor of The Intercept. On Sunday, a historic thing happened. The Senate finally passed the bill they've been trying to pass for an entire year. Or at least a version of it. What started as Bill Back Better got whittled down and whittled down and set aside and eventually reemerged this summer as the Inflation Reduction Act written in secret by Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The bill includes billions in funding for climate initiatives, but is also primarily a deficit reduction bill. That means it includes way more savings than it does spending. Just a few weeks ago, it was unimaginable that something of this size was going to pass. It's an incredible accomplishment with important ramifications, and the climate side of the bill is worth scrutinizing. But it also gives us a window into the politics around the economy and the fight between the Republicans, Joe Biden, and Joe Manchin to own the narrative about what's happening in the economy, a narrative that is often out of touch with the on-the-ground reality for working people. In some ways, to understand the battle that's going on to own the narrative of inflation, you have to go back to 2008. In 2008, Obama was criticized for going too small in his big bill to address the housing crisis. Biden, on selling the American Rescue Act in 2021, compared the pandemic response to 2008. So, the way I see it, the biggest risk is not going too big. If we go if we go too small, We've been here before. When this nation hit the Great Recession that Brock and I inherited in 2009, I was asked to lead the effort on the Economic Recovery Act to get it passed. It was a big recovery package, roughly $800 billion. I did everything I could to get it passed, including getting three Republicans to change their votes and vote for it. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't quite big enough. It stemmed the crisis, but the recovery could have been faster and even bigger. Obama's former economic advisor, Larry Summers, maybe feeling a bit competitive with Biden, immediately blasted the bill. I think this is the least responsible macroeconomic policies we've had in the last 40 years. And he warned of accelerating inflation as a result. I think there's about a one-third chance that inflation will significantly accelerate over the next several years and will be in a stagflationary situation. So now that inflation is going up, Summers is claiming victory. And in the meantime, the White House is trying to craft its own narrative, blaming sky-high corporate profits, 
price gouging, and supply chain issues as drivers of inflation. The supply chain issues, of course, are due to the lingering effects of the pandemic and the Russian war on Ukraine. So, because it's The Intercept's job to constantly provide a corrective to Larry Summers, we have two writers on today to talk about inflation, employment, wages, and the all-important narrative around the economy from a sane point of view. I'm joined by John Schwartz, a senior writer for The Intercept, and Ken Klippenstein, an investigative reporter for The Intercept. Last week, Ken and John reported on a Bank of America memo in which an analyst told the bank's wealthy clients they hope workers in the U.S. will lose leverage in the labor market. Although parts of that memo received some coverage when it was sent to clients, The Intercept is the first to publish the actual text, explaining the firm's view on the economy and how the battle lines are being drawn. But before we talk about the Bank of America memo, I started our conversation by asking John if the Inflation Reduction Act will actually reduce inflation. The only honest answer to that is, I don't know. And uh, that's the only honest answer that anybody can give. Like, nobody really knows if this is going to reduce inflation. It might, but it won't happen for a while. Nonetheless, like in the long term, it could do some things that will be very positive for Americans in general. Like lots of people are seeing their electric bill go up significantly. And if you are lucky enough to be in a place where you can buy electricity that is generated by wind or solar power, you will not have seen your electric bill go up. The people are seeing like real surges in their electric bills are in places where they're getting electricity uh, generated by natural gas and other fossil fuels. And so what this demonstrates is that the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, to the degree that it can really get the United States off of fossil fuels, you know, is going to make prices more stable and lower for people in general. And that's that's a great thing. And so hopefully that will happen. So, John, you also wrote a controversial piece back in December called Inflation is Good for You, um, and you were subsequently uh, taken to task for that headline by uh, the likes of Fox News and, and Brett Stevens. And, you know, granted, back at the, t- at the time, we didn't know just how bad inflation was going to get. Um, it seems much more serious now than it seemed then. So I wanted to ask you if you wanted to revisit the headline and, and do you stand by it now? And maybe explain first what the why, you know, inflation could ever be good for someone. Yes. Well, I admit that the headline was a little bit trolly. And uh, boy, people get angry about it. Uh, But I stand by what the article says, which is that as long as wages keep up with inflation, inflation is generally good for lots and lots of people in the economy. Like your purchasing power doesn't change, but the value of any debts that you have goes down. Like your, your debts are denominated in dollars that are losing value. So if you have a mortgage, if you have student loans, uh, you actually may be better off during periods of somewhat higher inflation. Now, it is true that you can always find people who, who are genuinely suffering because of inflation, people down, uh, you know, who are not making very much money, who are not getting raises to keep up with inflation. But the fact remains, like, if you look at the statistics the wealth of people in the bottom 50 percent uh, in the United States has, has actually gone up significantly during the last two years. And this is a hard thing for people to get their minds around. It, like nobody 
likes inflation, it's never politically popular. But the, the truth is, it is good in many cases for many people. And the real point of the article was, uh, you know, economists used to say, like, you know, like trying to uh, uh, deal with inflation by causing a recession is like, you know, curing a hangnail by cutting off your hand. You know, recessions are generally much worse for people than inflation is. And if you have to choose between the two, you know, you probably want to go with inflation. You know, and I want to emphasize that inflation does hurt a lot of people who are not making very much money. And that is a terrible thing. And that is a reason to be concerned about inflation. But what we should be careful of is not doing things to uh, try to tamp down inflation that hurt people like that even more. And is there like a point at which you would you yourself would say, okay, inflation is getting so bad that we actually do need to do something about it? Yes. I mean, uh, you it absolutely could get high enough that we would want to do something about it. But that something is the question, right? Like, to deal with inflation, you know, generally the idea is you need to reduce the amount of demand in the economy. And the tool that the Fed has and always uses is slowing down the economy, which throws people generally at the bottom out of work, reduces wages, and so on. You could also reduce demand by raising taxes on richer people. And so the question is, like, what is, what is the solution to this problem? And I, I think that we should concentrate on solutions that make people who have more, you know, pay the most. Like, that's just basic justice, uh, rather than making the people at the bottom pay the price. You know, I'm not an economist, but I was sort of trying to think about a different way to look at everything that's happening right now. And it seems to me that in some ways... What we're seeing now is almost like a a rebalancing after very stagnant wage growth over the past couple of decades. And that actually, you know, we we need so desperately to have working people have to have their wages be able to catch up a little bit because the price of everyday living is becoming completely unsustainable for people. And the economy that relies on on that kind of low wage work is, I mean, it's been going too far for a long time, but now it's like, it's really gotten horrible. So I don't know. I wondered if you would agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. I, I mean, it's, it's life has gotten harder and harder and harder for people, you know, sort of in the bottom 50% of the United States for decades. And whenever there are big questions like this, like, what are we going to do about inflation? We should be pushing for life to be made easier for people who have had it tough for a long, long time and not making them pay the, to the total cost of everything that's going on. But the way the U.S. political system works is like they're always the ones who pay the price. Like that's everything that's difficult, every difficult situation, uh, you know, we stomp on the faces of the people at the bottom. And the market that's existed for the past couple of decades has relied on having this slack labor market, i.e. basically taking advantage of high unemployment rates to create these businesses that are unsustainable if you actually have like decent wages. Yeah, that absolutely is true. Uh, in a better functioning economy, you know, you would have a lot few people, a lot fewer people who are, you know, like busboys at country clubs because there would be more productive jobs, you know, installing solar panels for them that would pay higher and, uh, you know, they would pay better and 
uh, they also would have more power in their workplace. They'd probably be unionized. And so in a situation like that, in an economy that really worked for everybody, you would get a lot of angry country club members who'd be like, like, why is service so slow? Why aren't they cleaning my table faster? And the answer would be is because we have an economy that works for people. And so that means that we can't afford to have a ton of really crappy jobs like we had before. And Ken, something that you and I have like interpersonally talked about a lot is that, you know, like mainstream economics uses the opacity of language to kind of hide from people what's really going on. Um, I felt like, you know, you both wrote a story on this Bank of America research report that really brought this out. You know, they're saying that they benefit from a slack labor market very directly. And they're saying that they don't want working people to have power very directly. But it's not something that that is normally brought to the attention of everyday people by the business press. So can you tell us about the memo that you guys reported on and and what it said? And maybe you could even um, read a bit directly from it um, if you have it in front of you. Sure. So the memo was written by uh, Ethan Harris, who's the head of global economics research for Bank of America. Because remember, this isn't just a bank in the sense of the kind of bank that you go into to get open a checking account and check your savings. It's also an investment bank. And so they pay very close attention to macroeconomic trends, um, including the um, labor market. And uh, what's special about a document like this is that it's sort of in a gray area um, in terms of it not being totally uh, publicly available. It's sent to their clients who themselves are um, having to make investment decisions to make profit. And because of that, and, and its internal nature, and the fact that they're informing investment decisions, they tend to be very candid about things in a way that they are not in public. And so they let their hair down a little bit, and they um, you know, say what they really think, and, and um, that can be a nice antidote to, as you said, the um, euphemisms that they rely on to describe things that um, they have good reason to use euphemisms because they would be unpopular. This reminds me very much of national security reporting, um, which I think people are a little bit more familiar with in the sense of, you know, when you say you're going to kill someone, you don't say that. You say you're going to liquidate the target or, you know, that you need to neutralize uh, something or, you know, you don't say you don't say civilians, you say soft targets. They have all these ways to sort of prettify, you know, things that are ugly. And so looking at this memo, um, it reminded me very much of the national security world. Uh, you can look at some of the euphemisms they use to describe things that are going to, you know, really hurt large numbers of people. So, for example, um, looking at that memo, it says, expresses distress about, quote, a record tight labor market. That's a phrase you'll see repeatedly. Tight labor market. What that means is that people are <laughs> have too much freedom in terms of the um, number of job openings that they have to choose between and that they can leave their jobs, um, that they are, you know, their hourly wages are too high. Um, and because of that, employers have to um, bid up the price of labor and give workers more options. Now, they can't come out and say, you know, ordinary everyday workers have it too good. So they have to say a tight labor market. So just as one example, and another point in the memo, it says, quote, wage pressures are, and there's a little bit more, and then it goes on to say, wage pressures are dot, 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 going to be hard to reverse. While there may have been some one-off increases in some pockets of the labor market, the upward pressure extends to virtually every in- industry, income, and skill level. So they're paying very close attention, these investment banks, um, to the gains that workers have had. And, and I, I agree with your assessment before that this is sort of a balancing of, you know, the stagnancy of the worker situation and wage growth over the past 30 or 40 years. And um, they're not going to come out and say that. <laughs> they're not going to come out and say, you know, we need to crush workers. Um, but in this very 
opaque way and with these sort of glossary terms to refer to, you know, ordinary everyday people's conditions, it sounds a lot like between this memo and a lot of other macroeconomic analysis I have from other big banks that we're going to be reporting in the coming weeks, like Goldman Sachs, Citibank, and the like, um, they're basically saying that workers have it too good. and We need to do something about that. And that's where a lot of this inflation talk comes into play and becomes useful because, um, you know, instead of saying that, they they can say something that's a little more palatable and say, oh, inflation is too high. And, you know, there's this longstanding theory that, you know, you've got to tamp down wage growth and, and, and worker security if you want to fight inflation. Now, again, no one wants to hear, you know, you're not going to be real popular if you're saying we need to have people making less money and having fewer options in terms of employment. Um, but if you cloak it in this language of, um, you know, we need to bring down the inflation, something that, as John said, hurts rich people a lot more than working people because, you know, who has the most assets uh, for the inflation to have an effect on? It's the rich. You know, it's a very useful language base for them to rely on. So just to drill down into this dynamic a little bit more, what does it matter to Bank of America's wealthy clients that wage growth is going up and inflation is going up? Because I think the instinct is to say that like, oh, it's going to hurt profits, it's going to hurt, you know, innovation or whatever. But profits are also going up in a lot of sectors. So I wondered if you could just, you know, either one of you, if you could just explain what they're so worried about. Well, look at the wave of unionization that's taking place now. I think it's very hard to separate that from the options that workers have at this point in time. Um, the decisions they can make to, you know, leave for another employer if they don't like the situations there. Um, I think there's a very tight connection between the opportunities that um, organized labor has and the um, freedoms that that workers have, just to name one example. Yeah, I mean, it, it's about two things. It's about money and it's about power. And in both cases, like regular working people and their interests and the interests of big corporations are just directly opposed. Like, that's just a fact. There's a certain amount of money that businesses make, and if workers make more of it, if they're getting more of it, then the people who own the businesses are making less profit. Like, there's no way around that. And as Ken says, it's also a direct question of power. Like, when there is a lot of demand for labor, people feel that they can unionize, that they have, uh, you know, the leverage versus their employer to be able to go ahead and do that. And so you see the wave of unionization, if you, would, you wouldn't see in a less tight labor market, uh, and you just see worker, working conditions getting better in a lot of places, like just all the things that go along with having a job, like the, the conditions scheduling, all kinds of basic things like that. So uh, low unemployment means much less leverage for employers, and uh, you know they don't like that. John, you've been researching the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, can you place their current thinking in in the context of history and and how they've worked in the over the past few decades? Yeah, well, it's good to go back to World War II and the Depression, which were huge watersheds for people understanding how economies truly worked. And the main thing from that period that people realized was that. Keynesian economics does actually function as it's supposed to in the sense that it can prevent depressions by having the government spend money. You know, that's something that's very basic and seems obvious, but was not accepted before that and before it was demonstrated by World War II, where the depression was ended 
by the government just spending lots and lots of money on things. And there's a Polish economist who wrote a famous essay towards the end of the Second World War where he said that we now know that the the government can create what, what he called like synthetic booms, meaning that uh, we can choose as a society that, that like we want to have a, a booming economy, meaning low unemployment, high wages, all the things that are good for regular people. But he said, you have to confront the fact that the business world is absolutely going to hate that, is going to hate the idea of constantly booming economies, and they're going to try to prevent that because it lessens their power in the society. And ever since then, so you know, this is, as I say, 1944, when he wrote that, the aftermath of World War II, there's been a ferocious, constant fight about that on behalf of the business community in the United States and elsewhere. But it's always, as Ken said, uh, hidden behind euphemism. And so, you know, throughout the period since the Second World War, whenever the economy has been getting too good for regular people, generally speaking, the Fed has stepped in to stop that. And inflation has been the excuse, but largely not the actual reason. So what do you think the the message that needs to be going out right now is? I mean, I'm sort of struck by how good at being paid attention to Larry Summers is. He said he said in June that he thinks that, you know, we can't get out from inflation without having five years of unemployment above five percent or one year of unemployment at ten percent, which is like pretty shocking. Um but I guess I wonder how you think that that narrative can be countered. I think when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Um, I think that there's a sense that, oh, it's Larry Summers. He's some guy on the right wing. Um, you know, I'm working on a story now about. But he's not calls. on the right wing. He's a he's a Democrat. Or right. Sorry that he's a that he's a fiscal hawk, let's say. Um, but, you know, I'm working on a story now. I was just looking at some of the earnings calls from the big banks. And I believe it was Bank of America. They were talking about. Um, they had undertaken a stress test, um, assuming a 10% unemployment rate. And they were sort of bragging to the investors on the call saying, hey, guys, look at how profitable we still are, even under conditions of 10% unemployment. And I was sort of shocked at that. And I wondered, well, why did they pick 10%? And then I you know, start reading. And, and just like you said, Larry Summers has also said 10%. Other um, kind of prominent macroeconomic figures have talked about 10% unemployment. So take seriously that this is something they're considering. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but extremely powerful people that are uh, listened to in the halls of power, um, if not, you know, among the general public, are, are proffering this at the same time. I have to imagine that there's, um, you know, some some chance that they're going to pursue something like that. And that would be devastating because 10% unemployment, right? I mean, the millions of people that would be out of work at 5%, um, you know, just imagine twice that. So anywhere within that range, they seem to be very seriously considering and what's implicit in this discussion is this idea that by doing that, I think what they try to say is, oh, that's going to decrease inflation. Again, if you look at some of the um, public macroeconomic analysis and the stuff that you know I've gotten in terms of the um, internal reporting, it's well understood that there's not a strong relationship between wages and this specific type of inflation that we're experiencing right now. It's widely understood that um, there are two main drivers for it. One is the supply chain problems that we're experiencing, particularly in Southeast Asia and China, where um, because of COVID, they'll you know shut down an entire factory or facility whenever there's a COVID case and that slows down um, shipments and exports. Um, they identify that as one of the leading causes. And the other one is the sanctions that we have placed 
on Russian oil, effectively taking off the second biggest um, oil producer on the global market, in addition to, you know, the Saudis holding down um, oil production um, or not willing to expand it further. Um, and, you know, oil being the main resource of the 20th and 21st century, those are the two main drivers of inflation. That's understood internally. On the other hand, when you look at what they say publicly, they try to insinuate that there's some kind of wage connection to these things. And that's very dubious. And again, internally, they don't talk that way. That's what they're saying publicly. Um, so I hope that the public can be appropriately uh, skeptical when they when they try to pass off this idea that somehow wages are driving the inflation. Because implicit in that is the idea that, oh, we need to bring down the wages and that'll fix the inflation, which it won't. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like Biden is saying that, you know, he is pointing to those drivers of inflation. He's pointing to the, you know, in addition to the sanctions, I think there's other supply chain issues that have been created by Russia's invasion of Ukraine around agriculture. But it's not really working. It feels, I mean, maybe it's just the position I'm in, but it feels like the fiscal hawks are, are constantly eating at the edges. And for some reason, their explanation of what's happening is more easily accepted. Well, the entire media is amplifying the financial centers of power and the story that they're telling with the economy. Because when, when Biden says these things, first of all, it just seems like he's trying to defend his record. And crucially, he's not identifying a bad guy here. He's saying that, you know, oh, it's not wages, so, so on and so forth. You have to say the Fed Chairman Powell is a fiscal hawk who was appointed under Trump, is a registered Republican, which he is, and uh, which, is, which is not a fight that the president is willing to take on because they believe in this. He's such an institutionalist in the same way that, you know, he doesn't use the bully pulpit to um, go after people in Congress as Trump did. Uh, he doesn't use the bully pulpit to criticize the Fed policy as Trump did as well. Um, the Fed Chair... Powell was um, discussing hiking interest rates during the Trump administration. And Trump very publicly said, um, you know, if you do that, I'm going to find a way to fire you. This guy is going to destroy the economy if he does that. Turns out they didn't hike rates under the Trump administration. There has been no commensurate um, communications push on the part of the White House or Biden to try to identify rate hikes as the enemy. So I don't think it's quite enough to just say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's this and that. You also have to identify who the malevolent actor is. And I just... For institutionalists like Biden, I don't think he's going to do that. They view culturally the um, the Fed as like the Supreme Court. Oh, it's a apolitical institution. We're not supposed to weigh in. I don't want to bias it. It's ridiculous. It's not an apolitical institution. 
Why is the chair a registered Republican if it is? I was going to say that the Democrats, you know, historically have made one key mistake, which is not setting up their own huge propaganda TV network. Propaganda doesn't even have to be bad. You know, propaganda can be true. Like you have to have some way of telling your own side of the story. And all the Democrats have is, you know, Joe Biden coming out looking tired <laughs> and saying a few things about inflation and corporate profits and stuff like that and supply chain issues. And who hears that? Nobody. Like to communicate with people, you need to say the same thing over and over and over and over again and have a bunch of people saying it. And the Democrats have never been serious about that. They've never wanted to uh, like do a positive, good version of Fox News, which in theory is possible, like like something that tells your side of the story, but does so by being honest. And they could have that. They just have a culture of refusing to take their own side. Well, and a, and a very corporate-backed set of politicians as well. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Because to be honest about this, they would have to tell the truth about their own financial backers, which their financial backers are. Yeah, not Biden, about. Biden's kind of uh, vacillating language of this is is a really great depiction of the problem when you have a um, labor party that is split between labor support and finance, where he can kind of try to defend um, um, labor against charges that it's driving this inflation, but he can't really attack the bad guy that's that's articulating the opposite point because he's getting money from a segment of them. They're in a very awkward position. I feel like this was very well highlighted on Sunday when they had the votorama about the amendments to the to the budget reconciliation bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the the two major changes that happened in all of the negotiations were two big favors to private equity. First, you know, pre pre votorama, Senator Cinema negotiated the carried interest loophole which was going to be closed by Manchin's version to be taken out of the bill. And that that was a the carried interest loophole allows, you know, hedge fund managers to basically take the money that they receive from from the market, but not have a tax at the rate that you would have for for profits from the market, but to have it taxed as, you know, normal income. And then the second was this amendment that was passed on Sunday, introduced by Senator John Thune, Republican, to exempt private equity-owned businesses from the from the 15% minimum tax rate on large businesses that was in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is all to say that it feels, and, and several Democrats, especially ones who are in, you know, hard-to-win states, um, you know, Warnock, for instance, voted for that amendment, which which ultimately passed, which is all to say that even in, in these pieces of legislation that start out very ambitious, they just get whittled away and start um, doing favors to private equity. But I guess... I guess I just wanted to reflect on on broadly what this says about how our, our economy works and, and how it's actually really possible to change it because the politicians that are in power right now are so entrenched with these high dollar firms. And maybe maybe the only way to change it is to is to reverse Citizens United. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think we need an authentic labor party. We can't have this Frankenstein of a partial labor party, partial private equity firms. And um, to recognize that, you know, when you've got all these big corporations endorsing the Democratic Party over the Republican Party, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, I think there's this attitude that it's like, oh, this is great. He's, you know, established a foothold in the center. 
people are going to recognize. It's like, well, that comes at a price, you know, you're not getting private equities, political contributions without, without something they're expecting in return. And I think that the decline of organized labor has created a vacuum in terms of the resources that, that a political party, the Republican or Democrats can, can turn to for, for resources that they need. And so, you know, they've turned to private equity to fill the gap that's emerged. So I think you need, I think you need, I think you need organized labor to, to return as a sort of um, mediating force in society. Yes, even even George Shultz, who was uh, Secretary of State under Reagan, said at a certain point that like like we did too much to kill unions. Like America needs strong unions now, and he was right. Like he he saw the damage that not having strong unions caused to America overall, uh, and he was a rare Republican in being honest about that. You may remember that after the two thousand and eight economic collapse, uh, uh, Dick Durbin, who is the uh, Democrats majority whip in the Senate said, you know, the big banks frankly own this place. And he was being completely honest. He doesn't seem to have uh, been interested in doing anything about that since then, but he was telling the truth. I think another another thing I wanted to talk about is, John, I wanted you to, to talk about the Adam Smith quote that you included in the piece. Maybe you want to read it and and say what it, how it applies to our current situation. Well, Adam Smith lived in the 1800s, and he's sometimes seen as as one of the first economists. And he was so new that he didn't actually, in his lifetime, I don't think was generally referred to as an economist. He was seen as something called a moral philosopher. Anyway, uh, in 1776, you know, the same year as the American Revolution, as the Declaration of Independence, he wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. And that has been championed by the right in the United States for a long time, which demonstrates that they truly never, ever read anything because it's the source. There's a famous quote about like the invisible hand, like you leave the market alone and then the as though it's led by an invisible hand, you know, it makes things better for everyone. But it demonstrates they've only read that one sentence because the rest of the book in large measure is him just excoriating the business world. And one of the things he said is high profits tend much more to raise the price of work than high wages. Our merchants and master manufacturers complain much of the bad effects of high wages and raising the price. They say nothing concerning the bad effects of high profits. They are silent with regard to the pernicious effects of their own gains. They complain only of those of other people. So in other words, Adam Smith was actually, in many ways, you know, such a radical that he couldn't write a column for an American newspaper. And what he meant by that was that this is the politics of inflation. Like when the prices go up, who gets blamed? Well, who gets blamed is regular working people. Like they're asking for too much money. And nobody is mentioning the profits that these companies are making that contribute to higher prices. And no one is looking at that right now for the most part. And profits in the United States as a share of the economy are, are at a crazy, ridiculous historic high. They're about 11%. And historically, uh, they were down more at, at 6 or 7% for the most part until you know, the last decade when uh, corporate power has increased. So the corporate profits have been going up and up. And so... Uh, Smith was absolutely right. Like he described the world that we live in right now today, like almost 250 years ago. 
It's kind of a a great psychological insight too. I mean, a very true one that, you know, one never sees oneself at fault, but we only hear from the people, the merchants and master manufacturers because they're the people who who have the microphone. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's not like a human, natural human instinct to say like, we're, you know, suffering from this really significant problem and it's my fault. (laughs) Like I'm doing it personally. Like people don't work like that. Yeah, the world would be so much better if people could (laughs) could admit that ever. Yes, if people could ever admit that. But you know, that's just a fact of human nature. They're never, they're never going to, especially people with power. And as you say, it's only the powerful people who have the microphones who are saying this thing. We're only hearing one side of the story. And if we heard the other side of the story, uh, it would be a much healthier and more balanced society. John, can you speak to what parallels exist uh, in the Carter administration and their handling of um, the Federal Reserve and their rate hikes? Well, as you say, the instinct of the Democrats is to never ever criticize government institutions and to really never take their own side in political battles. And so in 1972, uh, Richard Nixon was very open about telling the Federal Reserve, listen, the economy is gonna be great this year. Like you are not going to be raising rates. Everything is gonna be fantastic in America. And uh, he got what he wanted and things were fantastic and he won in a huge landslide. And then uh, during the Carter administration, uh, just a few years later, inflation was getting out of hand. It was very high. It was uh, largely higher than it is now. And that wasn't to a large degree because workers had it so great. It was because OPEC was raising the price of oil. But in any case, inflation was very high. uh, And Carter hired uh, Paul Volcker as the new head of the Federal Reserve. And he did that knowing that Volcker's plan was to come in and like jack up interest rates sky high, cause a huge recession. And uh, in fact, he did do that at the end of the Carter administration. And you know, 1980 was not a good economic year for the United States. Then uh, 1981, people forget, was also a terrible year. 82, not so fantastic. And uh, it hurt Carter and was one of the reasons why he was destroyed by Reagan in a landslide. Uh, Then Reagan came in, and it was very, very bad for him politically. And so uh, the Reagan administration did fight back and and, was unhappy about a lot of the things that that Volcker was doing. And it just goes to show that the Democrats uh, believe so much in sort of technocratic like what they think of as good government and technocracy generally means acting on behalf of the most powerful people in society dressed up in, you know, fancy abstract terms. But in any case, they believe so deeply in that they don't care about whether they are hurting themselves and destroying their own political prospects. It's really absolutely incredible. They're one of the strangest political parties that's ever existed. Those are some uncanny similarities because, um, as you said, OPEC prices driving deinflation. That's what we're seeing today, not just on the part of uh, Saudi oil production, but then the Russian oil being off the market and driving up the costs since oil then is more scarce. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that component of the history. Yeah, I mean, we could be rerunning the 70s all over again. And uh, we know how that turned out for America and we know how that turned out for the Democrats, but uh, apparently they don't realize that. Well, I would say the battle lines are being drawn. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren had a very good op-ed, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, criticizing uh, the Fed and urging them not to increase um, interest rates, knowing the effect that it would have on workers in the United States. And that's a very significant 
um, step for a you know U.S. senator whose expertise is in um, you know finance and macroecon um, to take because as I was saying before, the Democrats historically have avoided critiquing this institution. I think what remains to be seen is if um, much of the rest of the party uh, will will follow that lead and take a position on this and essentially do what Trump did and and you know register his disapproval about that, which you know during the Trump administration they ended up not significantly increasing rates uh i you know don't know for sure if that's related but i imagine it it would be um and and crucial crucially you know the white house has a role to play in this and it's unclear what if you look back when um biden chose uh to to you know keep powell on as fed chair which was a question because um he's a um as i said registered republican trump had appointed him and um he's known to be um, anti-regulation, financial regulation, and these were all points against him and made it unclear if Biden was going to select him. Um, Powell ended up um, affirming his you know, purported belief in, in the goal of full employment, which is basically the opposite of keeping um, inflation down. And that was understood by the Democrats at the time to mean, oh, okay, great. So he's not going to go after workers. He's not going to you know, significantly increase these, these uh, interest rates. Um, and we're seeing that now that's not true. And, and so there's going to be a reckoning and it really depends on, uh, what the, how the Democrats are going to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, I I think a labor party would be great. I think that we're in a much more exciting time than we were in a few years ago, but I also, I'm concerned about Biden's ability. I mean, as I've been kind of hitting on this entire podcast, I'm concerned about the ability to, control the narrative and specifically about how history is going to be rewritten about around the beginning of his presidency. Because, you know, when he came in and he, you know, they wrote the first bill responding to the pandemic, the American Rescue Act, it was this enormous piece of legislation. And the way that Biden framed it was specifically saying we're learning from 2008 we have to go bigger and much bigger and to save ourselves from a recession and and you know janet yellen at the time the treasury secretary was like this isn't going to affect inflation and now she's saying i was wrong you know inflation did go up and that to me is like pretty scary because it means that the next time that there's a big crisis and we need a big social spending bill people are going you know people won't point to the 2008 anymore they'll point to that and they'll say like look like that set america on a course where inflation was going up and up and up so i i don't know i sort of think like it would be great to have a labor party but to me like the labor movement is still in a in a very sensitive stage and hopefully it'll start to start dominoing out across Starbucks stores, across Amazon warehouses, but there's going to be a lot of opposition. So I'm still feeling pretty tentative about the future. But you you are absolutely right, because at the next crisis, that is the story that's going to be told. And what people won't say is that if you compare you know, the recovery from the pandemic recession to the recovery from the 2008 housing bubble collapse, you would much, much, much rather be a regular person right now than what people went through in 2008, 2009, 2010. 
you know, one of the reasons why the Democrats did so horribly in 2010 was because they refused to pump, reinflate the economy, to sort of pump the air back into it. And they did that this time. And all of the jobs that were lost in the pandemic recession have now been regained. And so that part of the story is, is a huge success. But, you know, as Ken pointed out, they will not tell the story in any kind of compelling way because it would require it the story to have villains, and uh, many of those villains are their campaign contributors. John, Ken, thank you for joining me on Intercepted. Good to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for discussing this. It really is an important subject, and uh, I hope people can pay attention to it. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Will Stanton mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcast@theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Nausicaa Renner. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm.